Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is, Can Congress Access Classified Information? My guest is Daniel Schumann. He's the policy director at Demand Progress, a grassroots nonpartisan organization that has worked to improve the legislative branch and to make government more transparent to the public. Daniel also is the editor of the First Branch Forecast, an extraordinarily informative newsletter that you can read about and subscribe to at no cost at firstbranchforecast.com. We last spoke with Daniel on episode eight of this podcast, where he enlightened us on the process by which Congress funds itself. This time around, we will dig into the subject of Congress and classified information. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I suppose we should start by defining our subject matter, classified information. Now, pardon the vanity here, but I'm going to refer to a report I wrote some years ago for the Congressional Research Service, where I defined classified information as information uh, or material designated and clearly marked or clearly represented pursuant to the provisions of a statute or executive order or a regulation or order issued pursuant to a statute or executive order as requiring a specific degree of protection against unauthorized disclosure for reasons of national security. 50 U.S.C. 426, paragraph 1. <laughs> How's that for clarity? Now, let's, let's make this a little more clear. Classified information, put really simply, is government information that only certain people in the executive branch can see. Is that roughly correct? Yeah, I mean, it's it's roughly right. I mean, there are folks inside the legislative and judicial branches who have a right to have access as well. And uh, as your uh, excellent report actually indicated, right, there's, there's two major ways in which you get classification. One is done by statutory authority, which is what we did largely for atomic information. And then there's everything else, which was just sort of made up by the president uh, through executive order. Uh, but as a general rule, 99.9% .9 or something pretty close to that, people have access to classified information, besides uh, probably journals at the New York Times, are people inside the executive branch. Okay. A listener might be hearing this and saying, wait a minute, is this inherently problematic for representative government? I mean, we the people, you know, elect the people who are supposed to make the laws, and the people who make the laws are supposed to oversee the executive branch, which executes the laws. But if stuff's classified and the public can't see it and the people in Congress generally can't see it, do we lose accountability? What do you think? We absolutely do. So in, there's two concepts sort of worth separating. One is whether you have the technical right to see certain information, and the other is whether you actually have the means to see it. So members of Congress and federal judges do not need to uh, obtain a clearance. 
nor does the president for that matter, which sometimes works out to our advantage and sometimes does not. Uh, so in theory, members of Congress and the judicial branch, the executive orders don't apply to them and they should be able to see any information that they need to be able to see. And by extension, at least in theory, so should their staff. So in Congress's example, it's the personal staff, it's the committee staff, it's the support offices and agencies. The second piece of this is not only is there this mechanical problem, like are you, do you have a clearance or do you not need a clearance? There's also whether this idea of like, you know, um, do you have this uh, need to know? Um, which is a different question. So uh, members of Congress don't need a clearance because they have their constitutional officers. But that is a different question from, and should they be able to see this information? And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. And the people who should decide that are the members of Congress themselves. It's the legislative body. They have a fundamental right to oversee the executive branch. The House of Representatives used to know, be known as the inquest of the nation. Right. It was they were I mean, we don't want to call them the Grand Inquisitor. Right. But they do have a right to get answers to all the questions, including things that the executive branch says is classified. But the executive branch plays games here a little bit. Uh, the executive branch is very large. Congressional staff are very small. So they, um, you know, well, not necessarily provide them the information. There is a longstanding fight where the executive branch doesn't want to hand over information. So Congress has created special committees that are focused on these matters. But then they play game with those committees as well. Well, we'll give it the intelligence committee, but we won't give it to armed services. Or we're going to classify it at a different level so your staff can't see it. Uh, one final point of accommodation, which is that while congressional staff, at least as a matter of theory, don't need to have a clearance, as a practical matter, they do. And the people who conduct the clearance review are, drum roll please, the executive branch, which is not the greatest thing in the world to have happen. Um, some of these clearances can happen quickly, some can happen slowly. Uh, there's a fun, a fun story that in the 1970s, the, the executive branch went to Congress and said, there's too many people with clearances. We're going to reduce the number of people in the executive branch with clearances, and you should also have fewer people in Congress. So the head of the CIA made a deal with Tip O'Neill and, and whoever was running the Senate at the time, I don't remember, uh, to reduce the number of people with clearances. But they didn't get rid of the number of clearances for people um, in leadership, of course. Uh, they got rid of it for the, for the rank and file. Um, you know, long story short, of course, the number of clearances in the executive branch went up astronomically, but Congress never changed uh, the way things work for them, so they have great trouble uh, overseeing matters that are happening inside the executive branch. From the perspective of representative government, uh, it, it is a little jarring that Congress has delegated so much control over classified information uh, and controlled information and all the other different types of information. They've delegated so much of that to the executive branch, um, you know, as we've kind of alluded to. You know, it's presidents via these executive orders who uh, set the rules on how much information gets classified, how long it gets classified and kept secret. It's really something, and it is what it is, uh, at least for the time being. Now, let me ask you this. Who in Congress, let's just drill down a little bit, who in Congress gets to see classified information, let's say, on a regular basis? Is it That's a good committees? Is it 
any individual schmo who's been elected, who is it? Well, so this is, again, we have theory and practice. In theory, every member of Congress has a right to see um, classified matters. But the House and Senate have each adopted rules that that compartments this information. So things that relate to the Armed Services Committee, members of the Armed Services Committee, in theory, can see. Um, there's they, well, The committee will have cleared staff. But now you start getting into fund principal agent problems. Committee staff work for the committee chair and not the members of the committee. Now, on the Senate side, in the Senate Intelligence Committee, you have staff designees. So each member of that committee has their own staffer that's hired and fired by them who has the same clearance as everybody else. So they can actually support the members. On the House side, that's not true at all. On the House Intelligence Committee, um, every, every member who is on the committee does not have a staffer who works for them, so the reliant on committee staff, with only one exception, which is that the Speaker of the House and the Minority Leader, who are ex officio members of the committee, they get staff designees, because I guess it's good to be the king, um, <laughs> which is how that works out there. So you have large information asymmetries inside the chamber, and then as it relates to outside. Classified information is not just shared inside the United States. We share it with our allies. Sometimes we inadvertently share it with our adversaries, um, but there are many people who are allowed to be in access to classified information. Uh, Congress is really where um, uh, there's a real rub, right? Lots of people who should be able to see it can't see it. They haven't kept up with the way that um, um, clearances have changed. So what used to be a secret way back in the day, they a lot of information is now up classified to being top secret. Top secret is called you know, we'll have compartmentalization on top of it. So while, you know, interns in the executive branch can often be in access to information that is highly classified, members of Congress and their staff have real difficulty accessing this. And even when they're voting on matters that um, uh, are highly classified, it's very difficult oftentimes for them to get access to that information. And the way access is provisioned um, oftentimes they don't have staff support to help them understand what it is that they're looking at, which is fundamentally problematic. Matter of access to be actually able to see it brings up a basic question of where do members of Congress get to see it? And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a kind of infamous moment that occurred during the, um, the second Bush presidency where you know some folks in Congress wanted to get some information on things that were happening in the Middle East, post 9-11 and the war and all that sort of stuff. And when they spoke to the executive branch and the president's people and said that they wanted to learn about this topic and see the classified information, uh, they were informed that if they wanted to see the information, they had to meet over in an executive branch building. Uh, and by the way, you would not be able to bring in a notepad or a pencil or anything else. Uh, so <laughs> the fact that the executive branch is actually kind of physically and digitally where this material rests for the most part um, means that the people in the executive branch have control. It's in their hands. So when Congress does get to see this stuff, how do they see it? Are they always stuck schlepping over, or can they see it somehow in the Capitol, their offices, or something else? 
It was a really good question. And it, it depends on how class, how, how the level of classification, um, and other sort of other things as well. So like materials that are at a low level of classification, you're actually allowed to send it by US mail. So, you know, very low things that are low levels of classification, you, you know, member can obtain it and they can keep it in a safe. Like there's a special GSA approved safe, um, which is very fun, um, where they can keep those matters. Then you sign it in and sign it out. And that's how that works. That's also how it works in the executive branch, which kind of explains some of the leaks that you see. Um, at higher levels, um, there are these special rooms called the SCIF, uh, which are basically Faraday cages, right? They're designed to be impervious to um, um, uh, surveillance. And you go into these rooms and you know, there's armed guards or whatever it is. And, and you can look at the documents. Sometimes uh, the person, you know, someone from the executive branch might bring it over and have it chained to them, which is very James Bond and kind of hilarious. Um, but that's how that sometimes works. Uh, there's uh, a number of classified email systems, Cipernet, uh, I think is one, um, where you, in theory, can email with people and ask questions and get a response. Um, but while the executive branch's network is widely available throughout the executive branch, they in, the, in Congress, they limit how many people you can email. <laughs> um, so there's all sorts of weird limitations in terms of like your ability to reach out and ask people questions. So Congress largely gets the short end of the stick. My favorite example, like your example is a good one. My favorite example is when Jay Rockefeller, God, I think it was Jay Rockefeller. It was, it was Senator Rockefeller. I can't remember which one. When he was briefed in the early 2000s on the unlawful domestic surveillance program that the Bush administration had stood up, they told him that he couldn't tell anybody else, that he couldn't have staff advise him. So the only memorialization of this is a note that he wrote to himself in pencil along with the file that was kept in wherever they did the briefing that says, basically, I think this is unconstitutional, but I'm not allowed to talk to anyone else. So I'm rendering, I'm putting my objection here. And that was it. Um, which of course leads to another problem, which is that, okay, so the president has told you, you know, some, some you Congress, this thing, you know, they informed the gang of eight or someone. Um, who else can you tell? Can you tell your fellow members of Congress? Can you introduce, can you, can you release this information to the public? Um, now that you've got it, what can you do with it? And the answer is often for the members, they're not willing to do anything because they're following the advice of the office of legal counsel at the department of justice, which reflects the perspectives of the executive branch and out of what the law actually is. So you go through great lengths to get access. You don't always have the context for what you're looking at. You're often told that you can't have staff support or the staff that are supporting you are not your people. And then there's restrictions in terms of what you can do with the information that you've received, which doesn't work well at all in a representative democracy. But boy, that's the system that we have. Well, it's, the Rockefeller example is a, is a juicy one because, you know, if he's hearing something and thinking to himself, this is unconstitutional, as a guy who took an oath upon taking office, part of which is I shall uphold the Constitution, you would seem to have an imperative to, to speak up. But saying that aside, you know, there certainly have been incidents where members of Congress have proudly 
release classified information, not just leaking it on the down low to media and giving it a little spin to create the narrative they want, but just letting it fly. And, you know, the example that comes to mind for me was uh, when Alaska's Mike Gravel basically went on the floor of the chamber and just put it in the public record. Uh, do you remember that incident? I do. I, I mean, I, I thought it was in his subcommittee. Like, there's video of this, right, where he's like crying as he's reading parts of the Pentagon Papers, I think they were, into the record. Because he, he thought that that was going to be the end of his career. Mm -hmm. And of course it wasn't. He was not yeah. locked up in a cage by the executive branch uh, for releasing this information. Um, yet so many members do think that you know the, the sky will fall upon them if they, if they do this sort of thing in the open. Well, it's funny because he found an interesting way to do this. So, um, as you know, there's speech uh, or debate clause protection. So if you do things as part of your official duties, uh, you can't be prosecuted elsewhere for it. So if you read it into the record, if you, you know, that's fine. If it's in the text of a bill, I'd, boy, I'd love to see someone leak classified information in like a resolution or something. But that hasn't ever happened. But like in theory, that I guess could be, you know, that's an official duty. But if you put it in a press release, you're fair game. Or if you're, you know, if, or if you put it in your freezer alongside whatever money you've got, like, you know, those, those are, you know, you're not allowed to do that. Um, um, there is a mechanism for the release of information the executive branch has deemed classified, uh, which is that the House Intelligence Committee or the Senate Intelligence Committee um, can put forward a resolution that ultimately is passed by the chamber uh, through a very long and convoluted process designed by Rube Goldberg, as far as I can tell to release information to the public. And that's only happened, to my knowledge, only once, and it happened in the House. So that doesn't declassify the information. So you're still not allowed to look at it uh, if you hold a clearance. Uh, but it actually did release the information to the public. And it's problematic because only the Intel Committee can do it. You have to play mother may I with the executive branch. So you pass a resolution that goes to the White House and, and they say, well, we'd like to release this. And the White House is like, you can't release this. You know, it's, it's like um, uh, the Passover story, you know, seven, just being denied again and again, right? Uh, so then they pass the resolution. It goes to the chamber. And the White House gets an opportunity to weigh in again. And then they can have a secret debate. And then they can decide whether to release this information. Um, just sort of one more point that's kind of funny, because um, there's a lot of things here that I find interesting. In the 19th century, the Senate largely operated in closed session for treaties and executive nominations the idea that this information should be confidential and so on and so forth. And what happened, of course, is that the press would get their hands on draft treaties and draft legislation and things like that all the time. So Congress largely does not operate in secret on the floor. It will do things in the committees. The executive branch, of course, operates largely, many parts of it largely in secret. And uh, we see that information being released all the time, sometimes officially because the White House views it as useful to them. And sometimes unofficially, um, because you have leakers in the press motivated by good reasons or bad, or because the information is stolen, lost, or has other problems. Um, it's interesting how much of our understanding of the world is shaped by information that the executive branch did not want released, but ultimately was beneficial to our democracy to know what was going on. Tom Blanton over at the National Security Archive says that there shouldn't be that much information that's classified and what's classified should be highly protected. And we sort of have the opposite world where there's a lot of information that's classified 
and the protections for it aren't that great. And I would just add that. And our best accountability mechanism, which is the legislative branch, is the one that is more thwarted than anybody else in terms of getting access to this information that they need to do their jobs. Yeah, having mentioned, um, you know, what happens when classified information gets uh, not formally declassified, but just released in some way, shape, or form, uh, I feel a obligated to mention uh, uh, this little story uh, on the kind of weird situation it creates for the legislative branch. When I was uh, working at the Con Congressional Research Service um, some years back, uh, there was an instance where I believe it was WikiLeaks uh, dumped a bunch of information that was classified out publicly. And of course, you know, media read it, legislators read it, uh, and it raised a whole lot of questions about various foreign policy issues and the like. Um, working in a legislative branch support agency, uh, the, the management told us, the workers, that we were not allowed to look at that information because it was not formally released. And that doing so on uh, you know, company or the government's laptops and uh, blackberries, I guess we had at the time, um, would be against the rules. Um, and, you know, a bunch of the worker bees, the analysts who work with Congress and the reference librarians, you know, objected and said, well, look, we got questions already coming in from legislators and staff asking us, like, what do you make of this? Or what are they referring to in this leaked document I've read about? And you know, just questions. And the management's response was, well, you can't help them. Uh, <laughs> and the staff are like, what do you mean we cannot help yeah. people? These are the people who appropriate our money. Um, these are the people who rely upon us and who are trying to engage in, you know, uh, oversight and all that sort of stuff. So it was just a, it was a very peculiar situation. But that's what happens when, you know, Congress doesn't have full control over the situation because Congress just didn't have an easy mechanism for saying like, no, 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 this stuff is not classified anymore. It's declassified. It's fair game. Anywho. Let me move on, in the interest of time, uh, to my last question. It's about congressional staff, which we talked a little bit about earlier. One issue that you've worked on for a while is that congressional staff, and I hope I don't oversimplify, their access to this information is not what it should be. What's, what's going on there? And what are the implications of them not having the access they need? That's a great question. I don't think you oversimplified it. I think it's right. Congressional staff um, have difficulty getting access, uh, getting clearances so they can be in access to certain classified information. Um, one, they have to go through the executive branch process. There are no interim clearances. There is a limited number of seats for people on the relevant committees of jurisdiction to get access to classified information. Uh, on the Senate side, the Senate just changed its policy to allow one personal office staffer per Senate office to get a TSSCI clearance. Uh, SCI is, this is it's sort of difficult to explain, but basically it's information that's gathered through like uh, um, certain intelligence means that relate to, like, talks about sources and methods. So like, how did you get this? What is it from? So a great example is um, if the Russian embassy reads the New York Times and they send it back to Vladimir Putin, and Vladimir Putin reads it, and the, you know, someone has a camera inside uh, his office, 
the information that it's reading, of course, is not classified, right? Like it's, you know, the, you know, you can read it to the times, but knowing the mechanism by which it was gathered to help assess the reliability is something that you don't want released. So what routinely happens is that when briefers from the intelligence agencies come in and a staffer asks the questions like, how do we know that this is reliable or, or things like that, they say, I'm sorry, you're not sufficiently cleared for us to be able to give you the answer to that question. Um, on the House side, no personal office staffers have a TSSCI clearance. Actually, it's, it's even worse than that. Some of them do because they um, are in the National Guard or something or in the military. So they, in their, in their evening and weekend jobs, they will have high levels of clearance, but they're, of course, not allowed to use it in their day job, um, So, which makes you know, basically no sense. Um, so they're precluded from being able to get access to it. There's rules inside the chamber that sort of segment out uh, where that information is as well. So, and um, then, you know, you had mentioned CRS, you know, there's the support offices and agencies. So GAO has a number of people with clearances. CRS has a handful of people with clearances. I don't know the exact numbers. You know, their role is to support Congress. Um, but the agencies will, the intelligence agencies will also play games with them about who can see what and when and who they're allowed to brief inside Congress with the information that they found um, conducting oversight in support of direction of Congress in the first place. So the, this is a perennial problem. Uh, there have been efforts in the House for a number of years to provide one personal office staffer for every office with a uh, TSSCI clearance. Um, they already provide Q clearances, which has to do with energy and not with crazy stuff. Um, for people, for member offices that have atomic energy related facilities in their districts. Um, but for the last eight or 10 years, Speaker Pelosi, who, former Speaker Pelosi, who was the longest serving member of the House Intelligence Committee ever in the history of that committee, was the one who had blocked those efforts, even though members of HIPSI and members of the Armed Services Committee said that because she, we assume, wanted to retain her informational advantage. Um, so you see these power games that are being played inside the chamber, between the committees, between the Congress and the executive branch, um, and they impede Congress's ability and individual members to fulfill their constitutional responsibilities to understand what they're voting on and to be able to conduct appropriate oversight. And staffers, of course, are integral to the operation of member offices, and members need someone that they can trust to do the work for them and to give them advice so they can vote the right way. Before I sign off, you mentioned HIPSI. For listeners who haven't heard of it, what's HIPSI? Um, it's what happens when you fall on your side and you break a bone. <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's, the House, it's the House Intelligence Committee. The House is called the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, which for people who are in the know, it's HIPSI. And I think I mentioned HACK. D before as well. That's the House uh, Appropriations Committee, Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. Sorry about the acronym soup, but these are all people who think that they're special snowflakes with access to certain information. All righty, Daniel, thank you for being on the program and for helping us better understand Congress and its access to classified information. Thank you, Kevin, for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jae Hun Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar.
You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.